Good morning. Everybody awake? We are hopping back into a series in First Kings, uh, which we started two weeks ago, and then we took a break, right? So what happened is we had a service two weeks ago where we talked about this series, First Kings, and then Aaron said, by the way, next week I'm going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to talk about this special sermon. And then I went to house church that night, and everyone wanted to talk about what he was going to say, right? And it's like, uh, well, what about what we just talked about, right? And then last week, everyone's like, oh, wow, okay, we actually did that. Um, and now you came back after we did that, right? After we talked about that. And that's, that's what I've noticed about when pastors, leaders, church leaders confront the, the hard things, the church doesn't respond negatively. It actually shines brighter, right? And come back and say, no, we're, we're in. Christ is worth it, right? Uh, and so that's, that's a little bit what I want to talk about today. But what we're going to do is we're going to hop into uh, 1 Kings 4 through chapter 9. And we're going to talk about King Solomon's extravagant temple. His extravagant temple. And we're going to ask two questions about King Solomon, or one question about King Solomon and one question about us. So first, we're going to try to answer through the scriptures, through this text, did King Solomon really understand what God was achieving through this temple? Did he really understand the purposes of God? And then we're going to ask ourselves the same question. Do we really understand what God is doing now, my wife and I try to go on regular dates. This week, we went to our favorite spot, um, and I order the hottest thing on the menu, and we go there often enough now that they know to bring me a pitcher of drink instead of just a pint, right? Uh, because I need it, right? It's actually serving both of us for, they don't have to refill my drink as often as I need them to, right? And so in the middle of the conversation, we're talking about our old house church. And she says, uh, wasn't such and such a part of this house church? And I say, no, they were never a part of the house church. We, we never went to house church with them in that house church. And she says, no, I'm really sure that they went to that house church. I'm like, nope. I am 100% confident. Actually, why don't you just go ahead and text the leader of that group, and we'll see who's right. And she was like, nah, I don't want to do that. And I was like, why don't you want to text her? No. The whole dinner, this conversation was happening, and then we leave, and she texts this person. And the person says, no, they weren't. But I understand everything that's happening. You are arguing with your husband. By the way, tell Matt this, because I know you guys are together, and this is, what, this is the dynamic that's happening, right? And so I get to stand here before you and say, I was right, <laughs> you know? And in me saying, I'm right, what am I? I'm wrong, you know? Like, there's a point when you're right, 
and then also wrong at the same time. You understand that? Like, I'm, I'm right, but I've missed the point. I'm right, but in me being right, I have sacrificed relationship with this person that I'm proving myself to be right with. You, you've been there? You're with me? Especially those who have been married for a little bit? <clears throat> so... What we're going to do is we're going to go through the text. I'm going to tell you a story of what's happening, how we got to this period of, of King Solomon building this temple, and then we're going to look at uh, King Solomon's dedication of this temple, and he's going to tell us, this is what I think of God's temple. Ready? So if you remember, maybe about four or five months ago, uh, it was pre-Bathsheba, Okay, so four or five months ago for us, maybe it's, uh, two or three decades for Solomon, right? Um, King David is sitting in his house of cedar, 2 Samuel chapter 7, and he's, he's relaxed, he's resting in his home, and he says to himself, man, I have got it good, you know? Like, look at this place. It's so beautiful. And then the thought comes to mind, I'm sitting in this magnificent house of cedar, my palace, and God's spirit is in a tent outside. And he goes to his buddy Nathan and says, man, I just feel like this is off. I should build our God a temple to reside in. If I live in a house this magnificent, I should respond by building a temple for my God. And Nathan says, have at it, man. It seems like a great idea. And then the Lord comes to Nathan and says, no, 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 no. He can't build a temple. Have him wait. I'll actually put a man on his throne, one of his sons, and I will have him build a temple. So fast forward to 1 Kings chapter 4. Solomon is worshiping God, offering sacrifices at the tabernacle, right? And he prays. Actually, God shows up and says, hey, I'll give you whatever you want. He asks for wisdom. And with the wisdom comes wealth and fame and honor, right? <clears throat> he gets what he wants, As he's thinking about this, he's got all this, this wisdom and all the materials. He remembers that David, his dad, had actually given Solomon a plan. David had sit and sat down and drawn out on an architectural plan. This is, these are the dimensions of the, the temple that I would build. And then he actually gives him all the treasure, all the goods, the money to purchase the things to buy the material to build the temple. And so Solomon now filled with wisdom is going to step into building this temple. But he doesn't do it in a prideful way. Second Chronicles chapter 2 verse 5 says, the house that I am building will be great for our God is greater than all gods. But who is able to build a house for him since the heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain him? Who then am I that I should build a house for him except as a place to burn sacrifices before him? 
And so with a humble heart, Solomon actually reaches out to his dad's golfing buddy, King Hiram, from the town next door. He says, hey, uh, I, ha- I have actually been seated on my dad's throne, and King Hiram rejoices, and they make a pact, and Solomon says, hey, I-, I need some wood, and there's no better lumberjacks on the earth than you and your men, so why don't we strike up a deal? You send me the wood, and I'll, I'll pay for it, and however you want me to pay for it. So King Hiram says, okay, send me some wheat and some oil. And so the deal is, I'll send you all the wood that you want as long as you pay me 20,000 cores of oil and wheat per year. And you think, what's a core? The amount here is four and a half million liters of wheat and oil. That's actually a ton. I don't know the inflation rate of that or the cost of that, but it's a lot, you know? So King Solomon drafts an army of people, 30,000 laborers to go help cut wood, 70,000 burden bearers to carry the items to the temple, 80,000 stone cutters, and three, over 3,000 men just to oversee the operation. So he's got more than 160,000 men working on this temple all at one time. 1 Kings 5 says this. It says, At the king's command, they quarried out great costly stones in order to lay the foundation of the house with dressed stones. So Solomon's builders and Hiram's builders and the men of Gabal did the cutting and repaired the timber at the stone to, be the, to build the house. If you go up to ABI, there is actually a memorial for Ray and Petraea Arno. You don't know this, but that was actually my idea. What used to happen is you would walk out of the school building and you would see a storage shed sitting there. And it was in the way of the best view on all of campus. And I thought to myself one day, why? How about I just run my car into it and knock that storage shed off the hill and let's put something there that actually looks nice, right? And so, Randy actually got all the credit for it because he went to the board and said, hey, let's do this. Let's build a memorial there. And I'm like, wait a minute. I told you that in secret in the office, and now you're making this big to-do, and now it's there. So they went out and they hired this this, uh, group of Amish uh, contractors. And what they did was is they actually pre-built this whole memorial in Ohio and then shipped it up here. And that's exactly what is happening with the temple is they went to the quarry and dug out the stones and built the temple there so that at the temple site you could hear no sound of work happening. There's no hammers, there's no sawing, there's nothing happening. And to me, that is like an extra level of it being built like magnificently, right? As if, if you don't have, you can build it somewhere and then put it together somewhere else perfectly. So this temple, 60 cubits long, which is 90 feet, the average uh, high school basketball court, which we just happened to be in, is 84 feet. So the temple went from past that basketball goal to past this one, and it was 30 feet wide, which is approximately from here 
to the end of the chairs, right? And then it was 45 feet tall. So I think it's bigger than the rafters. That's pretty impressive, right? I think so. In the middle of constructing this temple, God comes to Solomon again. He says, 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 11. Concerning this house that you are building, if you walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people. God, in the midst of building this temple, steps in and says, hey, remember why you're doing this, right? This isn't about blocks. This is about me and me being with you. And so he continues to build this extravagant temple. He lines the inside walls and ceiling with cedar, the floors with cypress, and then he has men to come in and carve scenes of the Garden of Eden all over the walls and on the ceiling. Scenes of animals and cherubim, of palm trees, of plants and gourds. And then he places these two statues in the middle of them, 15 feet tall, 15, 30 feet wide, actually 15 feet wide, these two cherubim, 15 feet tall. That's uh, three feet taller than this camera standing here in the middle of them. That's pretty massive, right? And they actually touch both sides of the temple and then their wings meet in the middle. And then he brings in the metal workers and the metal workers overlay every square inch of the place in pure gold. It's pretty, pretty spectacular. Can you imagine if this was all gold? Pretty crazy. So it took him seven years from start to finish to build this temple. And on top of that, he built all the furnishings, all the vessels, all of the instruments for worship and sacrifice, and he made all of those out of gold. And then he brought all of the gold that, that David gave him and put it in the temple. And all of Israel assembles at the temple, and he calls the Levites, says, okay, it's time for you to bring the ark to the temple. First Kings 8 says that all of Israel assembled were there, and they sacrificed so many sheep and oxen that they couldn't be counted. Seems like Solomon's doing all right so far, right? So the temple's built, it's ready to go, the ark is there, and King Solomon starts to say a, a, a benediction, a dedication over this temple. In this dedication, there are four things that I want, to, I want to point out to you. Four things that I think communicate this is what King Solomon knew to be true about the temple. The first one is that the temple was a meeting place. 1 Kings 8, 27 through 29 says, but, God, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you. 
How much less this house that I have built you, yet you have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord, my God, listen to the cry of, and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day towards this house, the place of which you have said, my name shall be there. If you go back and you read the end of Leviticus, which I realize is a big step, right? Most people don't want to read Leviticus, but it's actually a phenomenal book, especially the way that it ends. So he's, Moses has actually told the story. God gave us all these rules on how to build the tabernacle, which is the precursor to the temple. And he says, at the end, he says that God's presence filled the temple so much with smoke so that no one could enter it. So the picture is that God's presence is there and Moses is no longer allowed in. And then the first verse of, of Numbers chapter one says that Moses is inside the, temp the tabernacle speaking with God. The same is true for the temple. So all the imagery is supposed to bring Israel back to the Garden of Eden and say, remember the days when we met unencumbered by your sin? That's what I want again for this nation and my people. I want you to know me. When you walk into this holy place and you see the garden, I'm here with you. It's a meeting place, a step toward unencumbered presence with God. Number two, it's a place for offering sacrifices. 1 Kings 8, 38 through 39 says, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and stretching out his hand towards this house, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. King Solomon is no stranger to sacrificing animals. And yet he knows that as he comes to the temple with his sacrifice, with his offering to this God, it isn't just about shedding innocent blood, it's about receiving forgiveness, right? The Old Testament, he's ahead of his time, right? He's, he's understanding God truly has given him more wisdom than just the average Joe, right? Isaiah 43, 24 through 25. You have not bought me sweet cane with money, or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sin. You have wearied me with your iniquities. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my sake, and I will not remember your sins. King Solomon gets the point. This is why the temple is here. First, so we can meet him, and then so that we can receive forgiveness by him, right? Number three, it's a place for his glory. First Kings 8, 41 through 43 says, likewise... This is all part of his dedication. He's speaking to God. He says, likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people 
comes from a far country for your name's sake. When he comes and prays towards this house, here in heaven your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. I thought that was the great commission that came in the gospels, right? To, to go to the other nations. And here, Solomon is saying, is praying that this place that he just built, God would use to exemplify his glory, not just to the nation of Israel, but to anyone and everyone who comes and sees his glory present there. It's beautiful. I love that. Right? That his glory isn't just manifest to one nation, but open to all, the whole earth. I recently went home, this was at the beginning of October, uh, for two reasons. The first reason, I took, I took three of the kids home. It was like a feat, but it was great um, to visit my parents. And then the second thing I did is I visited for the first time uh, some college friends that I hadn't seen in probably 10, 12 years. Um, and if you remember my story, you can imagine that some of them might call me a hypocrite, you know? Like, we were with you when we did those things, and now you're, what? Yeah? Anybody relate to that? So I go for the first time, and I'm meeting some of these guys, and it's meant to be a surprise. And understandably some of them were kind of confrontational, uh, kind of calling into question my faith or what I was doing. And one of them explicitly said, well, you know, I mean, it just makes sense. Like, you grew up in America, in the Bible Belt even. Like, what is it, what's the likelihood that you wouldn't become a Christian, you know? Like, what about all the rest of the world? I mean, you just kind of fell into it. And in the, in the moment, I, I was like, that's, that's such a ridiculous answer. And I was, I was trying to answer him in different ways. And the more that I've thought about that, it's the most absurd argument ever, I think. <laughs> How am I close in proximity as an unbeliever to the living God? I mean, Jesus, I'm not close proximately geographically. I don't know if you know this, but Christianity isn't an American nation or an American uh, religion, right? I mean, that's way, that's halfway across the world. How did it get here, right? I'm not close in proximity geographically. I'm not close in the historical moment when Jesus was here telling us this message. I'm actually 2,000 years away. I'm also not close to him in how he generates a living being. Do you understand what I mean by that? What I mean by that is that when you meet the Lord, it takes a miracle for you to understand that he has forgiven you and that he wants to be with you, right? And so my faith isn't something I've come up with on my own, nor, nor is yours. That you believe is simply a miracle, and that's astonishing. I'm not close. It's, it's, not, it's not just this thing that would have always happened, right? Ephesians 2, 
12 and 13, he says, remember that you were at the time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And yet he came to those who were far off. And that is present, and Solomon understands it at the temple. Last one. What Solomon has to understand is God's faithfulness. He dedicates the temple, he's done praying, and God appears to him again. And he says, chapter 9, verse 3, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. What you did, I'm there with you. But it's not just you doing it. It's actually that uh, Solomon says in in, uh, chapter 8, he says, uh, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who with his hands fulfilled what he said he would promise with his mouth. To my dad. See, Solomon understands that this is not me making things happen. This is God working it out on my behalf, on our behalf. And as soon as he does that, just like at the tabernacle, God's presence through a thick cloud comes and descends into the, te- into the temple, and all of Israel falls on their face worshiping God, and they sing the first psalm at the temple, saying, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. So, with all of that information, how would you say King Solomon's doing? Is he right? Does he understand what God is doing with his temple? I'd say, yeah, he's doing pretty good. And then you turn the page And you see that he starts to walk away. So the answer is, yes, but what's happening? Yeah, I understand all of these things. I I bless, I dedicated this temple, and for the right purposes. But has the information, the wisdom that he has moved from his head to his heart? The answer is, apparently not, right? God comes to him again before we get to that point in chapter 9. He says, if you will follow me, I'll make all these things happen. But if you don't, if you don't, this is chapter, 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 8. I will make this house, a, uh, this house will become a heap of ruins A heap of ruins. This extravagant temple that Solomon has spent seven years, 160,000 men working to build, I'll just tear it down. And you know from the story that that actually happens, right? Yes, but. So then the question is, Do you understand? Do you understand here or in here what God is doing? 
See, the temple became something much grander than what Solomon built. Jesus shows up on the scene, the Gospels, and he says to his disciples and to the Pharisees on two different occasions, when they say, look at this extravagant temple, this second temple that we built, which is actually much less grand than the first one. Look how beautiful this place is. And Jesus says, uh, I'm going to tear that thing down. <laughs> and I'm going to rebuild it in three days. And they all say, uh, what? Huh? How could you build it in three days? It took Solomon seven years. It took us 46 years. And he tells a parable to the Pharisees. It's Luke chapter 20. It's the parable of the wicked tenants. He's speaking to the Pharisees and he says to them, he says, you know, uh, there's this guy, there's this father who has a vineyard and he rents out the vineyard to some people. And there's this period of time where there's no communication between the father, the owner, and the vineyard. And so he sends his servant to the vineyard and, and to see what's happening. And the servant comes back beaten. He sends a second servant to the vineyard. And the servant comes back beaten and shamed. And the third servant comes. And they beat him and wound him and send him back with nothing. And the father, the owner, says, maybe I'll send my son Maybe that will move them towards communicating with me, being open about what I already own. The text says that they just straight up murder the son. Speaking of the Pharisees, he says, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come down and destroy those tenants and will give the vineyard to others. The Pharisees respond, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus has come down and on the cross, he has been placed as the initial building block of a new temple. That's what he means here. I'm the temple, and I'm actually going to be built into something. What's, what's crazy about this is Solomon's dedication and what I've laid out in those four things, a meeting place, an offering for sacrifices, his glory and faithfulness, Jesus achieves all of them in his human ministry, his earthly ministry, and continues to do so to this day. He's a new temple. Do you understand what he's doing now? What's crazy about that is, is what's being built on top of the cornerstone. What's being built on top of the cornerstone are living stones making living sacrifices. 1 Peter 2 as you come to him, speaking of Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be holy 
to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in, in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into a marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have received mercy. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received it. You realize this, this currently, this is the fulfillment of God's promises all the way back to Abraham. Your children will be like the sands of the sea, uncountable. That first moment when David says to, in, his, in his heart, and I want to build my God a house. God responds through Nathan and says, no, 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 no. Second Samuel chapter seven, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares that the Lord will make you a house. You understand that what God is currently doing is building a temple that is exceedingly more extravagant than King Solomon could ever imagine. And he's not building it out of building blocks, but out of people who are made new in him. Isn't that crazy? So do you understand that, that what's happening here is, is God is building his temple in you. You are the building blocks. So do you come to church and look around at the people in this room and go, what a gem you are to the Lord. A living stone offering spiritual sacrifices to him. Showing off his glory to the world. Showing off how he has faithfully stepped in to redeem you and save you. Meeting you here and now. You are taking those steps for God, with God, to bring about his purposes on the earth now. Isn't that amazing? You are being made into a, into a house for him, both as an individual and as a church. And so how do we speak about those in this congregation? How do we speak about each other? How do we speak about Glacier View or CCC who are equally as much a part of the temple as we are? How do we talk about the church in other nations or other pieces of the world 
Do you, do you see each other as living sacrifices being built into something more extravagant than we could ever imagine? That's what I want to call you to today. It's to look at people in this room who've given their lives to God and just be in awe at the extravagant price that not only that he paid, but what he is making in this being. This morning, I'm gonna offer you four ways to respond to this. If you really have trouble in your heart, trusting that what God is doing is going to be fulfilled in the midst of this world, I'd offer you just to to stand up and sing your guts out. If you're having trouble seeing yourself that way and yet you know you've come to Christ again and again, you think, yet still, I'm nothing, come and pray with our prayer team. If you want to make an investment in other people seeing this glory, then give. Maybe give till it hurts a little bit, you know? And if you want to meet with him, he's given us a way to do that through communion. Would you pray with me? Father God, I ask, Lord, that you would be glorified in all that we do. And that through your church, our community, our nation would see you. That the the spiritual house that you are turning us into as individuals and a broader community would be realized. That That we would see you actively doing those things in our community and in our lives, God. Help us to really know in our hearts what you are doing and what you are achieving. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This is one of my sincerest desires is to see, to have eyes to see and ears to hear that we would all have that, right? That we would be walking with him in a way that we see his hand moving on a daily basis, not just in our lives, but in the lives of others, right? We don't officially end at 1230, so stick around, hang out, help us tear down a little bit. It'd be a great help to our teardown crew. If you have questions about Operation Christmas Child, please uh, stop by the information uh, or the information table. Um, If you are not sure where your next meal is coming from, or you know someone who's insecure, having food insecurities, please come talk to one of our staff. We would love to help out. And lastly, but not least, tonight is house church. So um, please join together in your house churches and and have a great time. Uh, We're so glad that you've been here. Have a great week.